A software application requires compute and storage. Both compute and storage have been abstracted into cloud tools that can be used by developers to build highly available distributed systems. In our previous episode, we explored the compute side. In today's episode, we discuss storage. Application developers store data in a variety of abstractions. In-memory caches allow for fast lookups. Relational databases allow for efficient retrieval of well-structured tables. NoSQL databases allow for retrieval of documents that may have a less defined schema. File storage systems allow the access pattern of nested file systems, like on your laptop. Distributed object storage systems allow for highly durable storage of any data type. Amazon S3 is a distributed object storage system with a wide spectrum of use cases. S3 is used for media file storage, archiving of log files, and data lake applications. S3 functionality has increased over the years, developing different tiers of data retrieval latency and cost structure. AWS S3 Glacier allows for long-term storage of data at a large cost reduction in exchange for increased latency of data access. Kevin Miller is the general manager of Amazon Glacier at Amazon Web Services. He joins the show to talk about the history of storage, the different options for storage in the cloud, and the design of S3 Glacier. This week is the last week for the Find Collabs Hackathon. Find Collabs is the company that I'm building, and our hackathon has $5,000 in prizes that are being awarded. You can find out about it by going to findcollabs.com hackathon. You can enter with any kind of project. Find Collabs is a place to find collaborators and build projects. I started it from my own need to find collaborators for software projects, music projects, art projects, all kinds of things. So if you're interested in building stuff, check out findcollabs.com. Miller, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. In computer systems, we learn about the memory hierarchy, and this illustrates the storage trade-offs of a single-node operating system, or in the grander sense, a distributed system. Before we get to talking about Glacier and other storage solutions within AWS, I want to talk about just the abstract idea of the memory hierarchy. Give us a review of the memory hierarchy. Well, sure. I mean, I think that the general idea of the memory hierarchy is that you have the, the cost, you know, in general, there's memory that is lower latency, faster to access, tends to be more expensive and thus generally provisioned in smaller quantities than memory that is slower, higher latency, slower to access, where the cost will generally be lower. So you know, if you think about the memory that's sitting on die with your CPU, that's going to be faster than the memory that uh, would be sitting, for example, in a, in a router. Routers often have very fast memory, very close to the forwarding components because they, they're doing constant hits against that memory. Uh, and you know, you have general purpose memory on a computer and solid state kind of below that and then spinning disk and below that you'd have tape so sort of the you know at each of those points the costs per unit tend to go down and the access times go up why does a software engineer need to care about any of this 
Well, I think that, you know, particularly these days where software engineers are being asked to build uh, very large distributed systems that are processing exabytes of data, frankly, on a daily basis, uh, it's incredibly important to understand, you know, the locality of your data. Where is your data currently? And are you... Um, which data do you need to have to process and what can you do to, you know, to essentially hide some of that latency, right? If, if you know that over the next 24 hours, I want to process an exabyte of data, you don't want to just say, okay, give me all that data right now. You, you won't be able to pay for an exabyte of main memory to store all that data. So by definition, you're going to be bringing some of that data into main memory. Other parts of that data will be staged coming in off of um, other storage media. So do you have... Any examples from your earlier days as a programmer, maybe in college or just getting started when you first dealt with the memory hierarchy intimately? It's a good question. I, I don't know that I can think of a specific example. I can think of plenty of situations where I looked at a program and I said, you know, why is this running so slowly? And and you realize that it's because of the way you're accessing memory, you know, and it can be as simple as, yeah, going back to college, one of my favorite classes in college actually was a, a class where we were asked to essentially reverse engineer the cache lines on a CPU and figure out exactly what it was doing with the memory. And you could clearly see there that if you accessed memory in, a, in one order, it would be very efficient. You'd have, you know, say a millisecond of latency total for your whole program versus if you just change the order of a couple operations, you would be sitting there for 10 milliseconds while the, the, the CPU constantly was churning what was in its, uh, its, you know, L1 or L2 cache. So, so you've mentioned, uh, cost trade-offs. I think there's also durability trade-offs in different storage mediums. Can you talk about the different durability settings that different types of storage can have? Well, sure. You know, when you think about the fastest memories that we that we use today, they tend to be volatile memory. I think that, I mean, there's a, clearly a differentiation between volatile and non-volatile memory, right? Your solid-state drives, hard drives, tapes, those are all non-volatile, whereas uh, CPU memory and, and memory, you know, main memory on a computer is all considered volatile. So you take the power away, it goes away. The day, you know, whatever you have in there goes away. And so, you know, obviously... Th- Customers and, uh, and programmers, developers have to think carefully about what data they need to be durable and 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 not. And you know, certainly as we think about cloud computing, I think actually the options for durability have gone way up actually than um, what, what used to be available. You know, it used to be that your durability was sort of governed by the fact that you would probably be operating in one data center and you may have, you may, for non-volatile, you may store one copy on a hard drive or maybe like a RAID configuration where you have um, essentially one extra copy. If one hard drive fails, you have, you can still restore the data if you can get another hard drive installed quick enough to to repair it, right? That would be kind of a traditional way of thinking about non-volatile memory. But you know, in cl- enter cloud computing where, you know, going back to even the earliest days of Amazon in, in uh, as Amazon was growing up in the late 90s and t- in early 2000s, we recognized that for the durability we wanted, we really needed to had, have three data centers uh, in, a, in a close proximity in a region within a few milliseconds of each other. And so that's what we built. And that's that has been a, a fundamental premise for AWS since you know, we launched uh, S3 launch now just about 13 years ago, actually, as a Pi Day in 2006. And we've built all of our regions on three availability zones because we know that, among other things, the durability benefits of having three AZs is, is, is pretty important in terms of knowing that the data is 
stored and will be you can read it back when you need to get it back. So we've talked so far a little bit about the single node memory hierarchy that we might have. We've talked a little bit about the distributed memory hierarchy we might have in the cloud computing world. Go a little bit deeper on the options for cloud computing storage and how cloud computing can explore a wider set of dimensions of trade-offs. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, so within AWS and, and as obviously the cloud provider I'm familiar with, uh, you know, within AWS, customers can provision storage in a number of ways. You can provision block storage, which looks just like a hard drive that you, you might attach to a computer. And so you have uh, you have block storage where you know, which is very similar to what you might attach a hard drive to a computer. You also have a number of file storage services, including our Elastic File Store. And that allows for more file level access, kind of like mounting an NFS share or, or mounting a Windows share. And then we have our object storage uh, service, which, again, you know, object storage was, was actually one of the first services we launched in AWS, or actually the first one in production. And we have always viewed S3, our object storage, as a fundamental building block to cloud computing. Uh, because, again, going back to the earliest days of Amazon, we realized that a lot of what we needed out of storage was an ability to have a blob of data parked in an object and to be able to use access it via APIs, uh, read and write, and manage access control on it and, and all the rest. And we really wanted it to be something that would scale much more than you might expect from a block storage or a file storage in terms of we wanted to have many, many concurrent accesses to it. We wanted you know, we didn't want to have to force a semantic where you would mount a file system. So that's what we built S3 for. So, you know, I think cloud computing certainly has expanded the options in in storage. And each of those options comes with our stated uh, durability expectations for it. So, you know, with, with S3, with our with with our S3 standard and S3 infrequent access and S3 Glacier, and now S3 Glacier Deep Archive, all of those storage classes store data in a minimum of three availability zones. And so, you know, we say that it's uh, 11 nines of durability, 99 point, you know, 9999, lots of nines, because we store the data across three data centers. And so we're really tolerant, you know, those services are incredibly tolerant to even issues that might impact an entire facility. I'd like to throw out a, an example that can make the different storage classes and different storage products that we're going to explore a little bit more concrete. So let's say we're building a photo sharing app. So a programmer who's building a photo sharing app, they might use a database like a document database or a relational database to store information about the users and perhaps the photos that are being posted by the user. And then they might use a different storage backing system to actually have the bytes for the photos themselves. They might use a bucket storage system for the photos and then have a URL for the bucket address in that database. Why does that make sense? Why do we need multiple storage types for our application? Well, I think the simplest thing is it comes down to cost, right? Uh, With and, and scale, cost and scale, really, which is to say that that programmer in that instance wants to build an application that can scale to store petabytes of images. You know, we, we have customers who, many customers who store petabytes of images or movies. So they don't want to have to provision that storage. And they also want to pay as low as they possibly can for that storage, knowing that, you know, in a photo, in a typical photo sharing application, 
let's say 5% of the content is really active and 95%, for some apps, that means it was posted 12 hours ago and now it's it's hardly ever going to be accessed again, right? And so they're looking for not just that it's inexpensive to store when it's active, but also that they can save money over time. They can opti- optimize their costs over time. And that's really what S3 provides. We have, uh, in fact, in another uh, storage class we launched just at, at reInvent last year is what we call intelligent tiering. And intelligent tiering, the idea there is you just store data in the intelligent tiering class. We charge a little bit just to monitor every object that you put in. And what we're doing is we're monitoring to see if it's accessed. And if it's not accessed for 30 days, we move it to a lower cost uh, uh, t- tier, what we call infrequent access, where you save money on the storage. So we charge you less for the storage automatically if it's not accessed. But then let's say that, you know, those photos were cold, but then for some reason, someone comes back and says, you know, I want to pull all those photos back or I want to do something with them. Uh, We will then automatically move it back into a frequent access tier where you pay a little bit more for the storage, but you don't have to pay per access at that point. So we automatically move storage between these frequent and infrequent access tiers based on what we actually see is being done with that storage. What you're describing is the advantages of a cloud provider that has matured and has built uh, primitives in the past that they can now leverage to offer finer-grained access patterns, finer-grained products, and you can also compose these different products together. So, Absolutely. So, the, you know, the, the idea of composing together a managed relational database with a managed bucket storage system provides a, a lot of options for, for people who are building stuff. What are some other storage patterns that we could consider? Because I think, you know, one, one that I've personally used a lot is the relational database or object database plus bucket storage system. What are some other kind of synergistic patterns between different storage classes? We find actually a lot of our customers, when they first get started with AWS or get first get started with the cloud, what they're trying to do is really move, make as few changes as possible and just migrate an application that they run maybe in an on-premises data center. They just want to move it as, as easily as they can to the, to the cloud and then give themselves the opportunity over time to iterate and replace components of that with something that's more cloud native. So, for example, when we look at our Elastic File Service, uh, which provides an NFS-compatible mount, or now we have FSX, which is our managed Windows file storage. It's actually, it is a Windows file server that we just fully manage. And so, you know, you can imagine a customer, you know, in in most on-premises data centers, they're using either sort of SAN block storage or a NAS, you know, NFS or Windows-compatible file storage. And so using something like EFS or FSX gives them a really quick way to just move that application into AWS. And then over time, you know, for example, with our earlier application where we, you know, then built a photo sharing capability on top of it, that would be a perfect use case to then add object storage on top of it. And, you know, customers can combine these things however they like. We don't, we don't limit how they can combine the different storage options. Another one that I'll, I'll throw out, I'll mention is, you, you mentioned a relational database. And, and so a lot of our relational databases run on top of our block storage. But then we also have our DynamoDB uh, database service. And that has its own storage engine as well that, that it runs on. And DynamoDB, like S3, was really designed for incredible scale, millions of TPS potentially through something like DynamoDB. And so... Again, we see a lot of customers come to us and say, I have, I'm using NFS, I'm using a MySQL database, I just want to move it. And we say, great, you know, that's the pattern, relational database, use our RDS service, use uh, Elastic File Service. But then over time, we really encourage, 
you know, looking at things like DynamoDB and S3, where they have even less burden of having to manage and provision storage. And typically the costs are, are lower as well when they do that. Because you are working at Amazon and you're an engineer, you have seen not just the patterns that people can build with these different services, but you also understand what is required to construct one of these services. What are some of the the computer science problems that the cloud storage systems that you've seen are solving underneath the API surface that the developer, the external developer mm-hmm. is working with? I think that one of the biggest problems that is solved by using cloud services, I mentioned it earlier, but one of the biggest problems that's solved is the ability to have three data centers and the attendant increase in durability and availability that you get by a service that automatically replicates data. With S3, when you put an object into S3, before our web server even even comes back and says 200, okay, that data is stored, before that even goes back, it's already been replicated into three data centers. So even if at that very moment, there was a failure in one data center. There's copies in two other facilities, uh, so your data remains durable. And same thing with availability, where one data center fails, the system automatically uh, shifts the front ends so that you're, you're not impacted or the impact is very minimal um, while that reconvergence happens. So those are those are incredibly hard uh, computer science problems and, and frankly, just not solvable if you're only operating in one facility, you know, and, and it becomes a pretty significant cost to go to additional facilities. The other thing that, you know, with, with our storage services is to achieve the low cost points that we do requires real innovation and application of CS, fundamental CS concepts to how do we distribute that data in a very cost-effective way without, while maintaining the availability and durability that's required. And uh, those are some fun problems to solve. And then again, using a service like S3 or Glacier, those problems are solved for you. Explain what Glacier is. Yeah, Glacier is our uh, archival storage service, and it's designed for asynchronous access. So today we launched a flavor of Glacier, S3 Glacier Deep Archive. And with Glacier Deep Archive, we really view it as a replacement for customers who do who run tape libraries as one use case. There's many use cases for it. But one in particular is if, if you run a tape library on-premises, the cost point that we have with Glacier Deep Archive, from everything we've looked at, is it's less expensive than running a tape library on-premises and dealing with all of the hassle of running a tape library. And so um, so just like a tape library, though, it's asynchronous access. So when you need to access an object, if you're using S3 standard, for example, it's milliseconds to get your object back. When you get an object in, in Glacier, we have three different retrieval speeds with expedited providing one to five minutes to get an object back. But then you can also save money and access it with our standard retrieval speed. That's uh, three to five hours and bulk is five to 12 hours. So it's worth noting that what you get by increasing the latency at which you're going to store your data is lower cost. Dramatically lower costs. Dramatically yes. lower cost. And you know, that can be achieved by, like you said, like tape is one. Like tape is just very cheap per bit that you're storing right. data. 
over time, we might have even things like DNA. Maybe we can store, like I've done some shows about, uh, you know, storing data in DNA. Not very efficient quite yet, but, you know, the promise is that would take up significantly less space than tape, you know, if you could store a lot of data in a molecule of sure, DNA. Sure, DNA is incredibly dense, yeah. It yeah, is. It's storage, yeah. It is. So... What are the different physical mediums that are at the cutting edge of low-cost storage? Well, there's a lot of research in a lot of areas. And so, I mean, you mentioned DNA. Certainly, there's a lot of research around that. There's, you know, another medium that people have used for low-cost storage in the past is optical media. Uh, so, you know, think DVDs, you know, that's a, another medium. And, you know, and then you have and you have tape, magnetic media. I mean, those are, I think, the probably the three that are notable in this in the field there's there's a lot of research on different technologies but i'd say those are three notable ones um you know it it is challenging to get to scale on new media and get to a a scale point where it becomes you know when you think about cost effectiveness and you, you look at how much investment is been made in magnetic media over decades um it's it's incredibly hard to beat some of those cost points but there there's certainly attempts to do so in other domains what are the requirements for building something like a glacier storage system relative to the requirements for building something like S3 itself? Well, with Glacier, as I said, is provides asynchronous access, and we use that asynchronous access to optimize the way we read and write data. Can, from- can you define that term asynchronous in this context? Yeah, so asynchronous just means that in contrast, S3 provides synchronous access. You call S3, you say get, and then within milliseconds, the object starts coming back. With Glacier, uh, when you know that you want to get an object back, you call S3, you call the S3 API and say, I want to restore that object. And then we notify you when the object is, is ready to be accessed. So it's, it's asynchronous in that you initiate a request. And then sometime later, we come back and say, okay, it's ready for, to be retrieved based on how you know, the retrieval speed you, you select. And so. The benefit of asynchronous uh, access is that we can optimize the way that we store and retrieve data in ways that make it more efficient cost-wise for us to store that data. And to do that, there's obviously then systems we have to build that are receiving requests, doing the the prioritization and the ordering of those requests, and then uh, accessing it on underlying media. And with Glacier, it, we have additional opportunities, again, because it's, it is asynchronous. There's, you know, one to five minutes is our expedited retrieval speed. That gives us time to, to perform other optimizations to really lower the cost point. So what you're talking about today is deep archive. So can you compare deep archive to just the the version of S3 Glacier that you had before that? Sure. So deep archive is about is 75% less expensive, so it's actually just about a dollar per terabyte month to store data on deep archive. So it's 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 le- cost less. Uh, it also has longer retrieval times. So what we heard from a lot of customers is that they have workloads where they have a lot of data but they they really don't ever intend to retrieve much of it, but they have to. They want to hold on to it. They have to, or they want to hold on to it. It could be anything from medical records or legal records or media archives that are that, that are very infrequently accessed. And so we with with Deep Archive, uh, our fastest retrieval time is twelve hours. Uh, in contrast with Glacier, which twelve hours is actually the slowest retrieval time. With with Glacier, you can retrieve data in uh, one to five minutes. So for customers who are willing to 
store data, knowing that it will, they can provide us 12 hours to re- receive that data. Once they request it, they can save 75% on the storage cost. So it really goes right back to what you, you know, we were talking about earlier with, with storage hierarchy, right? We have, we have a number of customers that want to use something like Deep Archive for analytics data that goes back you know, much further into the past. But if they decided to start doing an analytics job, they would then just begin retrieving the data where data that is fresher, data that is you know, less in the less in the in the past, would they would retrieve first and start processing that data. Meanwhile, they're making requests to pull some of the older data back. And by the time they are ready to process it, then that data is available to to process. Tell me about the product development process. Did this start with just the idea that eh, maybe we should try to think of a way to like make things even cheaper or did it start with like, uh, okay, we figured out like we can store data in DNA. Just give me kind of a, a, an idea of the product life cycle and how you took it from ideation to general availability. To, to, to launch, yeah. Well, 90% or so of the features on AWS's roadmap are directly set by what customers tell us they want. And and this was no exception. This was one where we heard from customers that they liked Glacier, they liked the price point, although when they compared it to running uh, tape libraries on-premises, they said, yeah, it's it's still a little bit more expensive than running a tape library on-premise. Can you can you bring that cost down to something where it's there's no decision for me. If it was truly cheaper than tape library on premises, I would just move it, my data to, to you and be done. Because, you know, for many of our customers, actually, they look at their everything they have in their data center and they just go rack by rack saying, how am I going to get rid of this rack? And they get to the tape library and they say, well, I need something at this price to do it. And so that was the main feedback we received. And then we turned around and we looked at what we had with Glacier and we realized that we had a lot of the the raw building blocks with Glacier, a lot of the key services that allow us to, as I said, allow us to receive requests and order them correctly. We had a lot of the raw building blocks and there were some additional things we could do to drive the price point even lower. And so that's what we did and developed. So uh, it was entirely based on what customers told us they, they needed. Can you get there entirely from changing storage mediums or do you also need like better compression systems? What else can you do? I mean, I guess thinking from more of a creative standpoint, you're, the product gives you relative to just regular Glacier, okay, we have this much more latency that we can you know play with. So, and so it's sort of like, what can we do in that time period? We can shift it around between different storage mediums. We can like change the compression ratios we're working with. What are the other axes that you can explore there? Well, it gets a little bit into some of the secrets also to speak of Glacier, but I'd say that we took a very hard look when we built Deep Archive, we took a very hard look at the cost structure as I mean, as we do for all of our services, we have a we get very specific about what does our cost structure look like. And we go line by line saying, what can we do to pull this down? And some of that involves hardware optimizations and things that we can do in kind of purpose building uh, certain hardware for the use case. Others of those line items uh, relate directly to how our software interacts with the service and uh, with the the hardware. And so it was a, a bit of an all of the above type approach of really just going down line by line saying, what can we do to further optimize the cost here? And we were able to achieve some some nice savings. And, and that's what resulted in this price. As a GM, how do you develop 
the mental model for how you should be exploring those different areas of the stack? Like, how have you personally found ways to be productive when you have to be such a full stack cognizant Well, part of it's uh, we organize our teams in ways where we have certain parts of our team that are responsible for certain line items, essentially in a cost model and, and other teams that are responsible for different line items. So, you know, we can scale the organization by having teams that focus on specific aspects of the problem and are therefore, you know, pretty, pretty focused on what do they need to do to drive their, their one or two cost line items down. So, and, and, and of course I look at everything and team looks at everything when we're, you know, pulling a product together to see where it puts us. So what are some use cases for Glacier and what are some use cases for Glacier Deep Archive? Can you describe maybe how the two, those two storage tiers contrast? So for Glacier, we have a number of customers that do media archives with Glacier. And so that is essentially any kind of large, you know, photo or video archive or audio archive. For example, you you think about how much uh, video is created by every cable network, you know, every broadcast network, um, all the movie studios. It's an incredible amount of data every year. And, and obviously, you know, for those archives, the amount of data that they need on any given day is actually governed by basically humans. You know, how much can a single human process and consume in one day if they're, you know, pulling together, uh, you know, clips or a new, um, you know, a new broadcast segment or, or whatever they might be doing. So, so media archives is, is certainly a, a, a big use case we have in, in Glacier. We also have a number of customers who use Glacier for uh, slightly aged analytics data. So anything that, you know, typically you see 30 plus days, right? So typically, if uh, customers are doing uh, big data analytics, they are processing the last day's data, last week's data pretty quickly and using that to drive kind of real-time decision making. But then once it's a week or two weeks or a, a, day, a month old, they they aren't accessing it as frequently, yet they still want to keep it around. So then they'll shift it into something like Glacier, where it's obviously there for them if they want to pull it back. Um, and then you take that to the next step, and, and those same customers then say, okay, once that data has aged even further, maybe it's three months old or even a year old, um, I still want to keep some of that data around. Um, actually, we've heard from many customers who say, look, you know, at a dollar per terabyte, I might just not delete some of this data I mean, where I, where before I had to, to save money, I might actually just keep it around and, and have it available so that I can do a year over year comparison, for example, or, you know, go back and reprocess that data. If I have a new, you know, I've developed a new ML algorithm. I want to go train it against even older data. So I'll pull it back to do that kind of processing. So that's really where deep archive fits is data that customers don't many customers come to us and they say, I don't actually ever intend to retrieve this data, but I, I'm not, I can't delete it. You know, it might be, it might have been a healthcare image where you know, healthcare providers are required to store um, data typically based on the life of the patient plus some amount of time. So, you know, that might be a hundred years that they would be storing that data for. Same thing with financial records or legal records where you just have to maintain that data for long periods of time. And then other customers have uh, intellectual property that they've developed that, they think of Deep Archive as kind of a backup for it. It would be a maybe a second or third copy of their data. Um, you can think of you know, folks who generate uh, original content or kind of core intellectual property for companies. They they look at Deep Archive as a way to to protect that data uh, be, because they intend to you know keep it forever. 
I could also see being really useful for this machine learning provenance problem, mm-hmm. you know, where you have yes. this like super complicated tree of decisions that your machine learning model is making. And if you're doing something like issuing a loan to somebody, you have to be able to explain why a machine learning model made a given decision at a given point in time. And doing that involves like tracing back how the model looked at a particular time, which can be super data intensive. And you're very rarely going to need to do that probably. But when you have a court case against your loan officiating service, well, you're going to need to retrieve that data. Right. That data suddenly becomes the most important data to find. Exactly. Absolutely. We've, we've certainly heard that kind of use case as well, where, yeah, where customers say, again, I don't intend to ever need to pull this back, but if it's needed, then I better have it, better be able to go retrieve it. So, so I want to park it somewhere at the lowest possible cost, but also know that I can get it back. And, and again, as Deep Archive is three data center redundant, it's 11 nines durable. So that data, unlike, you know, a lot of customers we talk to have existing tape archives where they rotate tapes uh, to off-premises storage, and um, that can be, be a very frustrating process for them to actually have to have a human figure out which tape they have to get back and load it, and oh, maybe that was the wrong tape, yeah. and it's a lot easier with Deep Archive. They, they issue the request, and, and that data comes back. So. What SLA do, do you guarantee with the Deep Archive? So we we have an SLA for availability. Um, the expectation we set for for retrieval time is 12 hours with our standard retrieval speed, and then 48 hours is bulk. So you save even more money if you're willing to wait up to 48 hours typically, then uh, you'll get uh, even lower uh, price to retrieve it. That's still pretty fast. 48 hours is still pretty fast. If you're Right. If you're involved in, in litigation, for example, where you need to pull it back, I mean, typically the timelines for that are... You know, weeks that you have to sort of pull that data together. So sure, 48 hours for, for those kinds of use cases seems perfectly reasonable. You think you can go, can you go to deeper, deeper archive? Can you get like... The, the biggest is, problem is naming it, actually. <laughs> we don't really know what we would call it if we did, but, uh, you know, we... Very I, cold glacier. Yeah, super... AWS Pluto glacier. Right. That's right. We could, certainly. We don't hear a lot of customers asking right. for even slower than 48 hours right. at this point. So if there's an opportunity, we certainly would explore it. Would there be significant savings at this point? Or do you think it's diminishing returns after 48 hours? I think we're getting pretty close to diminishing returns at 48 hours. But my team loves the challenge. If I say, hey, you know, let's find even more ways to save money and set a, a different uh, retrieval time, then uh, I think they would love that challenge. But again, it's mostly driven by what we hear from customers. Is another topic I don't know if you know anything about, but there was this paper that came out of Berkeley recently about the storage options for serverless computing. And basically the fact that if you're doing something with Lambda functions, for example, AWS Lambda, then uh, there are some some challenges with storage today. So for example, communicating messages between two Lambda functions or having a Lambda function read from storage. You know, I know you've been working on AWS Glacier, so this may not be your cup of tea at all, but do you have any idea what the ideal storage mediums for serverless functions might look like? Well, we think that S3 is a pretty good option for a lot of ser- for a lot of Lambda functions uh, use uh, in that it's, it's API-driven. It can all be accessed to the AWS SDK. I think that there are certainly some use cases that might be suited for something like an NFS share that's connected to a Lambda function. I think it really does depend on the workload and what customers are trying to accomplish with with Lambda functions. If they're building a brand new workload, we would 
strongly recommend they consider using S3 and DynamoDB and Lambda together. I mean, those those are all, if you think about the spectrum from self-managed all the way up to fully managed, you know, S3, DynamoDB, Lambda are at the extreme edge of these are fully managed services. You With Lambda, you drop in your code and with DynamoDB, you store your data uh, in a, in a, you know, table structure and can run queries against it. And with S3, you have a blob store to be able to store you know, larger blobs of data uh, that you want to be able to access by URL. So, I, I mean, I really think the combination is actually pretty powerful. That said, there are customers who for sure look at Lambda to help them process data in a file system. And so for them, sure, it, you know, there it would be valuable to have a file system available in their Lambda function to be able to do that, just to be able to, to, to work on things that they might already have. You know, for example, if, if customers are bringing a file system in and they want to use Lambda to process it, then then that would make, make sense to do. But for a truly kind of net new workload, I think customers would be certainly internally the way we think about building services. We look, we look to the extreme to say, can we use the fully managed service? And then we only back off from that if we have really good reason that we don't think we can for some reason. You're very heavily on the storage side of things, but it's pretty clear just looking over into the compute side of things that there's quite a gradient developing there as well in terms of stateful workloads and stateless workloads. And when, as you said, when do I need a file system for my Lambda function? And when don't I? And can my function disappear miraculously? And can I restart it? And is that a problem? What's your perspective on the quote-unquote compute hierarchy? Well, I think sort of what I said earlier, when we start to go build new services internally, our initial preference would be how do we build this in a way where another service is responsible for maintaining as much of it as possible. You know, I'd rather not actually have to have my engineers worry directly about patching their instances or keeping the software up to date. I'd rather have that be managed for me, right? And and be something that's just done automatically and, and know that it's happening because it's something that my service provider, you know, Lambda or perhaps one of the container services Fargate. is, is Fargate is doing for me. So, so yeah, we, I think that, for new workloads, the default position should be to try to go as far as you can in, in a managed service. And again, when customers are bringing workloads in that they already are running or, you know, there's certainly some some use cases where they are looking to have more direct control or the application requires multiple components that are running in close proximity. And so those are some, you know, use cases where going more towards the self-managed route makes more sense. But yeah, the default position, I would say, is to try to have it be managed as much as possible. We completely agree with you, but do we have the same spectrum of questions around, like, durability of the of the service? Like, if I, if I want to spin up a service, if I can tell the cloud provider, yeah, I mean, it's okay if the service falls over occasionally, then I'm going to get cheaper compute because you can schedule it on to... Uh, like spot instances, a spot or, instance, for example, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. or like really low quality hardware, perhaps. Like this is like you know the discount dustbin hardware. We could schedule yeah, we, stuff onto there. Yeah, we wouldn't think of it as discount discount dustbin, but I, I do think there's so many workloads that can benefit from our spot 
instance capability. And it's not res- it's not about quality. It's really just about time shifting. Do you need to have a thousand cores this very second, or is your workload one where you can have a hundred cores now, and maybe you'll have two hundred cores, you know, in ten minutes, and and it'll just it'll vary based on what's available. But there's a lot of workloads that actually can run in that kind of environment, and certainly save money doing so if they're willing to essentially time shift. You know, when the results are available, similar to how we think about Glacier in terms of asynchronous access versus synchronous access. Would it make any sense to have like a spot market for storage? I think the challenge with storage is that we that the concept of deleting data without a customer explicitly telling us to delete the data is. I think because shivers down our spine. <laughs> so I think the idea of a spot storage market is that you'd have to be willing to essentially delete data uh, when you need to reclaim the space. I mean, that's in, in essence what's happening with spot is you can use as much capacity until the moment that it's needed for someone who's paying more for it. And, and then those instances will be shut down. So I think this the, the Moral equivalent in storage would be deleting data that is marked as spot data. And yeah, it gives me shivers mm. down my spine thinking about it. But <laughs> well, if, well, it's a, if it's a real need, we'd explore it for sure. Well, I would just think of it like, I guess the spot storage vision that I have would be just like kind of what you described earlier with the thing where it's, you say like, just detect, monitor this piece of data. And if nobody's accessing it, just go deeper and deeper and deeper. Right. So we do have an S3 intelligent tiering, which which automatically saves customers money based on how frequently it's accessed. So, so certainly, uh, you know, we, we, we get, we're getting, hearing a lot of positive feedback from customers about intelligent tiering, because again, it's just one less thing they have to think about. And yet they save money if they put the data in intelligent tiering. So we're certainly exploring other things we can do with intelligent tiering to along that, uh, that idea of it being intelligent you know what else can we do with that to automatically save money and for sure we're looking there so one of the cool things about aws lambda was it was one of the most concrete examples of in doing the show i've seen a lot of examples of of cloud provider technology being utilized to develop new design patterns, things that look like new computer science design patterns coming out of products uh, as opposed to like computer science white papers. Have you seen any interesting application architectural design patterns recently that that seem emergent in just things that are being built with cloud provider tools? I think the big pattern that is still very early, but it, there's a lot more there is, is just around more of an event driven yeah. flow based model versus, and, and this is where Glacier I think fits really nicely because um, one of the other things we launched actually at reInvent last year was uh, restore notifications. So the idea is you could have a Lambda function say, okay, I need this data from Glacier, send the request to Glacier, and then Glacier, S3 Glacier will send a notification once that's data available, that could go right back to a Lambda function to kind of continue the processing. So I think if you, if if customers and, and application builders start thinking more about applications as event-driven and where the events are not necessarily, you know, my uh, code calling another piece of my code, it's really my code calls, whether it's SQS or Kinesis or out to S3 to initiate an action. And then once that action is completed, it flows back into the next part of my code. That, that seems like a really interesting pattern just to... So it seems like a really interesting pattern. The other thing I would say about that pattern is that 
it leads to a world where there's much better inspection and a bit introspection capability over what's happening. So that I think is another pattern which is really underdeveloped in the market today. And I'm seeing more and more people realize that, you know, if I'm going to run a cloud application that's designed to scale, you know, to very large scales, I really needed the ability to introspect, to see what's going on. You know, if I'm seeing extra latency, where's that latency coming from? And so you look, you think about AWS tools like X-Ray and CloudWatch, and there's, there's, capability and certainly more to be built to to help provide that introspection. But when you kind of decompose it from being the application from being, you know, a bunch of code running in one virtual machine, you know, one JVM, for example, and you decompose it to it's a little bit of Lambda code that runs that fires off some actions, and then those actions come back. There's so many points of inspection that you can have there that we can provide free AWS can provide that actually a lot of it could be yeah, quote unquote free, right? You can see you get a lot of that monitoring kind of just built in. So yeah. Just to wrap up, any ideas for future products within the storage space that you're excited about? We talked a little bit about intelligent tiering. I think that's an area where we're certainly talking, Seems like there's a talking lot of depth to, to yeah. that product. There's a lot that category. can be done there. And so talking to a lot of customers about what they'd like, you know, what else we can do to make that storage even more intelligent, so to speak. You know, I think that everything we talked about with Lambda and with Compute, we're definitely looking hard at what can we do to make that integration, those integrations even easier. Uh, so you, another thing we launched at reInvent last year was S3 batch operations. And that's the idea. I mean, we have customers that have, literally have billions of objects or you know, multiple billions of objects, and they want the ability to process you know all of that data or change metadata across all billion objects and s3 batch operations makes that possible and we're we're sort of thinking about what's what are some next iterations we could do on that so a couple of other dynamics i find interesting in the storage space are you have these applications these days where it's like i'm using my phone and i want to have as much data on my phone as possible for a given application because the application is going to be more buttery smooth if I'm if I'm operating it on my phone. But obviously, you know, I can't store everything on the phone. Right. Is that a space that that you might play in as at, you know on the AWS storage team, or do you feel like that's more like AppSync or somebody on the mobile? Well, certainly AppSync is probably where with a focal point for where we think about that, but we don't think of it as being strong silos where, you know, I, I, I can't go look at something else in that space. Uh, I think that there's been some customer feedback around that. Uh, and, and we're, it may be something we spend some, you know, more cycles on, but I think with AppSync, you know, it, it, that's a pretty good product for helping customers sync, uh, the, the data they need today and sort of have a, a coherent view. I mean, that, that's part of the challenge with, caching data locally is, is the coherency, right? So AppSync definitely helps with the the cache coherency type problem. Uh, but there's certainly more we could do there. Yeah. So there was this this theme that seems to be emerging. Problem like the tiered storage that you described, it seems like an opportunity for machine learning. Like you have all these different signals for types of data and how frequently data is, is being accessed and the, and the types of data that are being accessed. You don't have to talk about, you know, particular applications of machine learning, but do you have a broad perspective for how machine learning could be applied to making storage more efficient? I certainly think it's true that proper application of machine learning in storage could help customers save money. You know, to, kind of to the, the point earlier about memory hierarchies, right? If you can make better predictions about 
what data should be in which part of the hierarchy at, at a point in time, you will likely find opportunities to save money. I'd say, you know, we've taken a look at that a bit when we were building intelligent tiering. And what we found with intelligent tiering is that the single most important question or single most important signal about whether data would be accessed was, has it been recently accessed? So that's why we built intelligent tiering initially to be really just based around how frequently or what was the last time that this don't data was accessed. You don't that. need much machine learning for that, actually. But You're LRU. Uh, <laughs> right. But that said, machine learning, particularly if it can be tied into more business intelligence around the data to say, you know, we know that this piece of data is about this this patient or this record, you know, or this tax return, whatever that kind of additional metadata is, that's where I think you will you'll find more optimizations are possible with machine learning than sort of generically looking at an object and and just, you know, the, the basic characteristics of an object. So so certainly I think there's opportunity, you know, in that more application specific domain. Yeah. Kevin Miller, thanks for coming on the show. Great talking. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was great. Wow. 